0: Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at Shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's Shopify.com slash tech.
1: This is Entrepreneurs Exposed, where we speak with all kinds of founders and creators doing amazing things in business and beyond. On the show today is Mark Angelos. He is a sales leader from the fintech world and the founder and CEO of Envictus, a communication and content marketing services company for blockchain startups and creator economy entrepreneurs. He's authored several hundred articles and videos on content and sales, and his work has been featured on CNBC, Bloomberg, the Content Marketing Institute, and elsewhere. In this episode, we dive into Mark's origins on Wall Street, his last days at Lehman Brothers back in 08 how he pivoted from the world of finance into content marketing, why AI and chat GPT will devalue many marketers and copywriters, how to build rapport and relationships using context, not content, and so much more. So with that intro out of the way, let's get right to the show. Here is my great chat with Mark Angelos. One of the things that stood out to me was your background. So when you went to college, you went to Lehigh. And you got a BA in history. And here's the list of activities and societies that you belong to. Okay. <laughs> this kind of stood out to me. So college radio broadcaster, newspaper writer, rock band, track, soccer player, and a couple of other items. And you graduate and then you end up
0: on Wall Street as a trader. How does this happen? Don't remind me. First of all, I was an artsy kid. I, I'm a, I like to talk. I like to be in front of people. I ended up at Lehigh because my oldest sister went there and she's a super performer. And Lehigh, for those who don't know, is a very high-end engineering university. So I'm going to school with the people that build my bridges and our spaceships. I am not a math guy. So I very quickly realized that I'm not cut for this. History was great because I'm a writer and a communicator. So I ended up on Wall Street because frankly, that's where I thought the money would be. As you might know, it's a math-oriented profession But I very quickly realized that the tech end of Wall Street, super smart people, have difficulty communicating the value of the products they build. So in the fintech side of Wall Street, they build algorithms and AI-based trading software. And then these things are amazing. The flux capacitor works. They just can't explain why it's important to the customer. So I found a little niche for myself and ran it for 30 years And uh, that's all I did. I worked at many companies on Wall Street, but always in the same role and always serving the same set of clients. And when I say the same set of clients, maybe there were 30 clients that manage money at the hedge fund level in Wall Street that matter. And that's who, you know, working for the big firms I worked for, Morgan Stanley and UBS, that's all the same client base for them.
1: Yeah. On top of Barclays and, and Lehman's as well. Were you there, by the way, when Lehman's collapsed in 08?
0: I can tell you all the Lehman stories you want. I was there the day it collapsed. So in a nutshell, Lehman's stock price is cratering that week. Everyone expects we're going to go out of business, but we're not sure. I go through the list of all my clients and find out all the ones that are owed money by my company, Lehman Brothers at the time. And I contact them and I said, I don't know anything, but if this firm goes under, you're going to lose this money. So, and these are big checks, $50,000, $100,000. They're research credits. Long story short, when the following days go uh, Lehman's out of business uh, next week on Sunday night. I get calls from all these clients. They're like, dude, I don't know where you end up, but you've got my business for life. And it was a lesson I learned about taking care of other people, even if it's not benefiting you. Like there was no direct benefit to me to help these people, but you do the right thing by folks. And and it comes back and business is predicated upon that relationship building. Kudos to you for doing that. But what were you
1: thinking about? I mean, you're still a young guy at that time. Did you know what you were going to do next? What was going through your head?
0: So Friday night, Lehman's you know goes out of business on Sunday and I don't know this, but we all know it's, it's not looking good. I, like everyone else, is printing out lists and lists of clients, right? Just stay late. I mean, this is totally lie. You can get a lot of trouble with this. But I wait till like 7 o'clock at night, and I got literally shopping bags full of client information. And I there's no one around anywhere. I make for the elevator, get in the elevator, doors are closing. The hand comes through the door, pops back open. It was like a movie. My boss's boss gets into the elevator. He looks at me. He's like, working late? I'm like, yeah, yeah. I just got a few things to clean up he sees what it is. He goes, we'll talk about this on Monday. I'm like, okay. (laughs) Sunday night, they're out of business. Didn't matter. Anyway, the point was, what was I doing? Monday, we go to work. Tuesday, Wednesday. By Thursday, I called my wife and I'm like, people are in the office, 6.30 AM, suit and tie. There's no company. There's no business to be done. It was like a psychology experiment. And so I've said, I'll finish the week and we'll just, you know, we'll get out of here. My wife said, what are we going to do? And I said, we're going to go on vacation. And so we did. So long story short, I got another job, you figure it out. But like, that's a lot of life is just, you know, you can't see everything coming. You just grow with it.
1: Did you see the Madoff documentary on Netflix that just came out?
0: I haven't seen it yet, but I mean, dude, I lived it.
1: You know, I watched that documentary and of course, you know, Lehman Brothers is in that documentary. Uh, There's plenty of other banking related relationships that are talked about in those four episodes. The scary part to me was that you know, the size and scale of the scheme was, was so big and only a handful of individuals actually ended up going to jail and nothing happened on the banking side. Like it's a 65 plus billion dollar Ponzi scheme and the bank account resides with J P Morgan Chase and nobody at J P Morgan Chase goes down for anything related to this Madoff thing.
0: You'll get me started. I mean, you, you know, I can tell you stories, but I'll tell you a, a brief one. Madoff, but most people don't realize, the, the regulatory body for Madoff, FINRA, which is the financial cops, basically, they would be trained annually by the Madoff organization. So he was on the inside, one of the good guys helping these securities regulators out for years. This is public knowledge. And so nobody looked too closely into it. I mean, it makes sense now, but when things did finally go down, there were a lot of folks who were buddy-buddy, and I don't know anything, um, but I can suspect
1: clarification question on that. So how does FINRA differ from the SEC? Because he also had a relationship with the SEC.
0: So FINRA is a NASDAQ specific regulatory body that is a industry run. So the difference is the SEC is actually federal government US. It's at the federal level. FINRA is an industry run organization for self-policing. The idea was, I think it was 1987, there was a scandal where the market makers were colluding and they needed to either p- clean up their act and police themselves, or they were going to get some draconian regulations. So FINRA has been in place to prevent the SEC from having to take a tighter you know, tack with the securities business. The thinking is the brokers would rather regulate themselves, than, and that's what FINRA does, than have the SEC come in there. How
1: did you pivot from uh, 30 plus years on Wall Street to Invictus and your current niche, which you've carved out beautifully, by the way. How do you make this
0: transition? When I was working on these algorithmic trading desks, and so the real traders who knew math were out there on the cash desk, as they called it, were trading, buying and selling stock. And I was in the electronic arm where I would train the customers on how to use the machinery of algorithms. Like, so algos don't always work the same way every day, depending on what the market's doing. You trade differently than I would trade, so I need to customize your software for that. This type of thing Most people, especially when you're talking big-ticket trades, million-dollar trades, they don't want to just hit the enter button and hope it works. They want to understand, what is this thing doing when, I'm, when my order comes into your system, Mark, what happens? So I was explaining it, explaining it, and finally I'm like, I'm just write it down, which then became easy. Let me just put this on LinkedIn. I started publishing a weekly LinkedIn. I'll call it a column, never mentioned a client, never mentioned a product by name, and I never mentioned my company. But I just said, these are the questions you should be asking your brokers. If you manage money on Wall Street, these are the top concerns you should have. And most people don't know this, but even today, Adam, when you press the enter button and the order goes down, it never makes it to the New York Stock Exchange. Electronic wholesalers like Virtu and Citadel will buy that order flow and trade against it. It's legal. The point is people don't know how the stock market plumbing works. And so in talking about that repeatedly, I started to develop a following. I started to be contacted by my competitor firms for my opinion on potential hires they were thinking of making into their trading desks. I'm just a sales schmuck, like I'm a nobody, but I realized, ah, power of content. Like now I know that as content marketing, but at the time I didn't know about that. Soon enough, several of my articles that I was posting for free on LinkedIn lifted and published in major media. I'm not talking like Bloomberg Traders Magazine, without my permission which didn't sit well with the bosses, right? There's a lot of compliance around securities trading. And so while I was writing these LinkedIn columns and I I was just becoming the best sales guy on the team, not because I'm good, just because I'm the only one talking about it. So the customers, I would write something, some thoughts on the market. On Monday, the biggest clients on Wall Street would call me up to tell me I was an idiot or that they thought I was smart. But either way, these were calls that I would have never gotten them on the phone outbound. But inbound, they were like, dude, You almost had this right. You didn't have this part right. Ah, you want to go grab a drink sometime. So I realized content drives sales. And then the next thing I was thinking, all right, video. If you you go to my early LinkedIn's at the very back of them, there's always a video attached. And it's like me in front of a sheet in my basement. It's awful. But I started to put myself through a self-training of if I could rip a 60-second video every day, just straight to camera, no prep on a sales tip. And I started doing that on Instagram. I did that for a couple of years. So I'd come out of the subway in New York City on the walk to the building. I would just say, these are the top three things you need to know to build rapport with a client. And that, I did it on Instagram because I wasn't allowed to do it on LinkedIn, frankly. They'll take writing and they can do some podcasting in in the financial space, but they don't really like face videos. Anyway, long story short, I was doing my own content training. When lockdown happened in 2020, all these firms that yelled at me for all these years came to me and they were like, listen, that crap you're doing on LinkedIn, can you do it with us? Because we can't get out to visit the clients. So I said, I'll do it, but I'm going to charge you. And looked like a business to me. So the fintech space specifically, I know it. They need help communicating. Sometimes that means sales, but most times it means content. And the blockchain space, for those who care, is the same thing as traditional finance infrastructure, just in a different form. And what I mean by that is there's vendors, data analytics platforms, API builders, tools providers. Like These are all the same in the crypto blockchain asset world as they are traditional finance.
1: And you've carved out this segment as, I mean, one of the key segments of your business now, right? You're providing content marketing services for
0: these blockchain companies. Right. That's exactly what I do. For example, a blockchain firm, a layer two, makes their blockchain faster. The, the, the idea is it's data packets. How much do we strip out before we send the message that we can make it faster? And that means you can trade faster. You can transact money faster. So how do you express that and the value of that? That world lives in, well, our product widget does this. The electrons do this. And in real business, people don't care. They just want to know that when I swipe my credit card, it, I have to wait half a second less for the visa to go through. So communicating the product into the tangible benefit to the user, it sounds simple, but there's a whole industry around that, and it's especially critical in the technology space.
1: I would agree. I mean, have you heard more recent interviews with Vitalik Buterin? I mean, if you listen to this guy try and explain how Ethereum works to a layperson, he just can't do it. To your point, I think this is a swim lane that just requires a little bit of handholding when we talk about communicating what it is their value proposition does for the market. And this is where
0: they struggle. Right. People communicate, at a, you know your thing, whatever it is, to the nth degree. I mean, I've worked on Wall Street 30 years, I know it. When you explain it to someone, you really got to dumb it down, like fourth grade level. And that gets difficult when you've lived the life of building precision tools. These are things that are so complex and advanced and they're in that world. And thank God for that, because I, you don't want me building it. But when it comes time to expressing the value of it, it's a big challenge. And this is a left brain, right brain thing. I don't look down on this. So this is, I, I understand it. But my point is there's a niche there for sure.
1: A couple things you mentioned earlier about these videos you were putting out. One is this relationship between content and driving sales, which I'll get to in a little bit. But I want to ask you about the three things that you do to build rapport. One of those first videos that you did, what are the top three things folks need to do to build rapport?
0: So, rapport, it's always about know, like, and trust. That's common. The KLT factor is what they call it in sales. No means you got to be there every day, consistency. That's it. This is as simple as you know because you've been podcasting for how long now, Adam? You get this intimately. The other factors that I would include for sure number one, stop selling. Nobody needs the sales pitch anymore. This is the whole concept of content. By the time anyone speaks to a salesperson, they're, I think it's LinkedIn data, they're 80% through the, da- the buyer's journey already. So, not selling is selling now. What that means is you got to help them. Insight. This is not about information anymore. Information's free. It's insight. What does that mean? So number one, be there regularly. Number two, be insightful without selling. And number three, help them outside their business. Like nothing to do with the money end of it. So connections. I was in Germany and I, uh, the guy map out the best way to take his family through Disney World (laughs) because he was coming to the States for vacation. So that type of stuff drives business. When there's not enough business to go around, which is what we are in recession right now, people pick and choose who they want to give their money to.
1: You know, I was reading a piece earlier, and you talk about this rise of relationship-based selling, which has kind of, in my opinion, been here for a few decades now, perhaps even longer dating back to the Dale Carnegie stuff. But how do you see relationship-based selling becoming critical going forward, especially as it relates to
0: AI? So number one, AI is merely labor oriented, right? This just makes the process easier. The way AI affects selling is information, as I mentioned, is no longer a sellable asset. I can get all the information from Chat GPT. I don't need you to tell me anything. What I need is you to tell me what it means. So then implementation of the information becomes what differentiates you. How do I use this information is, is my point. AI is a factor in the creation of things. Fair enough but it doesn't build relationship. And the human-to-human element becomes more valuable in an AI world. I w- you need to know who is the person giving me the information. That's part of the sale now. So if I may be the smartest guy in the world and tell you the best things of how to use ChatGPT, but if I'm a douchebag, you're not going to do business with me. So you need to make sure that you as a business person are getting across your personality, your belief systems, You're doing, Adam, you as an example are running a podcast for five years, helping delivering value. Like, that's very clear what you stand for and how you help. That's great. And there is, by the way, the value of podcasting. But many people are just trying to make some cheap content, SEO. The social aspect of connecting with the people behind the company generationally has never been more important. The kids today will simply not do business with a company they don't believe in. And what does that mean? It means that. Your CEO, whether they like it or not, or whatever small operation you're running, there's a content responsibility is the term I'll use. Because if if I don't know you, there's no way I'm going to like or trust you. So social selling, there's nothing new in the world. Right? You're right. This is Dale Carnegie. I'm a huge fan of that book. Dale Carnegie nailed it. It's just the same old game done in a different form. Nothing's different.
1: Let's double click though. Two other themes emerged here as it relates to what you were writing about. So humanizing as a differentiator, this is definitely key with respect to what you're talking about. Connection becoming king. I assume you're also sort of making the claim that the general content is king game. That sort of game is now near over. Is that how you see it? What's next as it relates to what's happening here?
0: Context context is king. Whose information is this and why are they giving it? To, like, where does this information come from? It may be good information, but I need to know the context of it. So information itself in a Google world is worth very little, right? I can Google it. In a chat GPT world, it's worth even less. I would even argue it's worth zero. So forget the information piece. Content, which is just information, can't be about information anymore. It has to be about emotional connection. So then you get into the art of building relationships through content. This is no different from befriending someone in high school, pursuing a boy or a girl if you're in the dating scene. You have to figure out, how do I make a connection with these people? What is their interest? What drives them? And how can I touch on that in an authentic way? Because by the way, humans can smell that a mile away. If you're not authentic, game over. People know, everybody knows. And so the old days of and I'm going back to like click funnels automation, outbound, all that stuff, it worked. It did work for a long time. It won't work anymore because now that everyone can do it, it doesn't matter anymore. To your point, there's still going to be a content marketing world. It's not going to be an informational content marketing world. How
1: does this play out in the context of sourcing talent, hiring the right talent, identifying folks who have a high EQ, let's say, who understand how to navigate what's happening here. How do you see things going
0: forward? High EQ wins, period. And many times, think of the model of death by a thousand cuts. These big companies are challenged right now for for talent attraction and retention. That's going to continue. And the reason is they don't have the EQ levels at the top level they need. I'm generalizing. But if I don't have a literally charismatic leader I'm not interested in working for the corporate faceless thing anymore. And I'm not just talking me, I'm talking generationally. These college graduates will work for a firm where they believe in the person and will not if they don't. So talent is going to always be driven now, the attracting and maximizing of it, the quiet quitting thing. This has got to do with how much do I want to really commit myself to that person in charge? Do I believe in the mission? This sounds real fluffy. It sounds like real foofy, especially post-COVID. It's the deciding factor in which companies perform and which don't. So when Elon Musk sets up a tent and they are able to make the production numbers happen in a California parking lot, because the people want this to happen, is very different. You know, this is going back to when Walt Disney started his studio and he had his animators working for free because they were having hard times. When your team it believes in what you're doing and you can drive that, then that's EQ, by the way, you win. Business and finance especially has always been just a numbers. There's the person who can spin the plates the most efficiently. How many plates can I get spinning and maintain them? And that's managerial. That's what most businesses are today, management. And then there's the creator who's thinking, what plates should I be spinning? This is stepping back a bit now. And I need to attract that to myself. All I'm saying is that the EQ factor wasn't a huge thing in big business and it is now. They just don't know it. One
1: of the other things you're calling out is this return to long-form content. I think you're half right. And the reason I say that is because apparently chat GPT is so sophisticated that folks are literally writing novels with this thing. So length of content doesn't seem to be, at least at a very superficial level, to be a barrier. What am
0: I missing? Length of content is not the, the arbiter of quality of content. So number one, short form of anything. Let's go with TikTok. Short form tweets, little mini clips. It's just the appetizer, right? This is them passing the hand-passed appetizers at the wedding. And it's going to direct you down the funnel. It's top of funnel activity to, to the long form. Okay. I like that 30 second clip of Adam Levinter. Let me go see, listen, that's, that's a podcast I might want to, And now I go listen to it. The long form matters. Now the length doesn't matter. I would sit through a nine hour Star Wars movie if it was, you know, like I love Star Wars it doesn't matter how long it is. It matters how good it is. And so if I can do this as compacted as possible, great. But really super short form is really just a gateway to long form. And the long form has to be quality. And that doesn't mean long. I mean, there've been 45 minute pieces that I've sat through and been like, that's amazing. I wish that had gone longer. And the problem is the interplay between long form and short form is strategic and people haven't thought that through.
1: What about disruptions? So who's in trouble here going forward? Is it everyday content copywriters? Is it authors? Is it the education system? Because they're going to have trouble keeping on top of their students and how they're leveraging these tools.
0: Who's in trouble? I have a big beef with the education system and their approach to ChatGPT. This is them not allowing people to learn about calculators. Anyway, who's in trouble depending on your perspective? If you're talking from ChatGPT specifically, yeah, the crap copy makers, the bottom underlie of content creation though anyone who's not that great at what they do. And that's as it should be. Like I'm I'm okay with that. I feel like it elevates the level of performance in production. Right? This is about how good is your workmanship? Who's not in trouble and who will never be in trouble? How to use the tools? Who can strategically deploy this to tell a story and create emotion on the other side? And that is not something you can chat GPT yet. So, I think who's in trouble on the corporate scene, to your earlier point, any company who's led by a faceless, personalityless, brandless leader. That's a problem. They're not going to have be able to attract and retain talent. On the creator side, anyone who's simply not good enough or have enough depth of knowledge of their craft. Because when everyone can do the thing, whatever it is, then the person who's been doing it the longest and has the deepest insights to see around corners gets more out of the tool. When I write content, and I can, I can I use an example in one of my recent articles. I come out of the finance technology world. I can chat GPT a story and give you top 10 tips how to be a heart surgeon. I could, but if I give you top 10 tips how to build your blockchain tools, I've done that for 30 years and I've seen people that did it and I know what goes into that. I'll give you a much better, more interesting nitty gritty. So this gets to your core competencies.
1: You know, you mentioned this analogy of folks spitting plates, And it's those strategic business minds who use these tools effectively that are going to be the winners. Do you have any concrete examples of folks in your world, companies, clients that you've observed that are using these tools effectively
0: and are profiting or winning from it? Yeah. Jasper, there's a lot of them. there. All of these are rough sketch tools, right? You should be roughing up whatever you're doing with them, and then you can go build off of it listening to interviews, I don't know him personally, but Justin Welsh, who's a solopreneur, Saturday Solopreneur is his newsletter. He was talking how he's dabbling with this. I know Joe Polizzi actually personally, and he's dabbling with these tools. These are people who are trying to create content that benefits a larger community. They have the expertise that they will overlay onto it, but this is the baseline of what I want to make a piece around. So in my case, in my world, how to communicate and sell with content. I would You know, work up top 10 best uses of GPT, let's just say. And I'll look at that and I'll think to myself, too generic. Let's apply it now. If I were trying to train a person to do this, like sit with me, what would I say? So, ChatGPT, Otter, Jasper, all these AI tools, they're really just, they're like the Word document or the Excel spreadsheet in the old days. It organizes you. It does. They're great and you should use them. But if you're just going to hit print and submit, you can tell. What about distribution channels? So,
1: where folks are going to tell their stories going forward? You know, there's the B2C company, there's the typical B2B company. If you're a B2B player, you're likely going to look to LinkedIn first. If you're a B2C, you're selling a product, you'll try and leverage social media to some extent, or you should be. Google, etc. I want to ask you what you're seeing in terms of trends and then obviously ask you about TikTok and where you see the future of this company headed. In particular in the US, where there's so much geopolitical tension tied up in TikTok's ownership structure, because as I understand it, ByteDance is still the parent company that wholly owns TikTok. And therefore, there's a lot of sensitivities, in fact, as to where the data on US users is going. So what happens to TikTok going
0: forward? Do you think there's a risk that this platform actually gets shut down in the US? I do. I actually I think that honestly, Elon Musk and Vine come make a comeback. I think that TikTok is the political hot potato right now. Whether you agree with the whole conspiracy of the Chinese Communist Party or not, people are nervous. And so perception is reality in business. Ultimately, I think there'll be action. Maybe it's just America or maybe it's not. But yeah, I do believe that TikTok eventually gets banned. Do you think this happens in 2023? I don't think in 2023, but I do think that the US election cycle comes around and then people want to make a their imprint right so that that and this is an easy this is a gimme and i'm not picking size politics but whoever's in charge is making the country safe in america by getting rid of tiktok so it's i mean i could be wrong i don't know anything more i don't pretend to know to your question about the channels though a little more nuance to this the channels of distribution have to do with two things number one the channel itself right they all have their own language the suit and ties theoretically are on LinkedIn. The kids are on TikTok with the baseball cap. I'm generalizing, but they're different languages. But it also has to do with the person. Certain people, especially in the tech world, are better on camera or are better on, you know, written. You've been doing the audio. Like the format through which you express your thoughts matters. And that comes from your personality. Like some people you can throw in front of a camera and that's fine. And other people who are super smart, you just don't want them hemming and hawing in front of this thing. It's not going to help their company. So mixing and matching the formats, the mediums, the types of content to the platforms. And I don't agree with being everywhere out the gate. That's just like the Gary Vaynerchuk model is tough to manage unless you have 35 people working for you. But I do think that there's a conversation around, you need to know yourself and how you communicate, your style. The thing you're communicating about matters, right? technologists are on Twitter, but the no code help me understand solopreneur people are on LinkedIn. So you have to understand the platforms, yourself, the product, and then you figure out, okay, what's going to connect?
1: One of the topics that we had to chat about today was this evolution of the creator economy and how it's changing traditional business. So one step back from this question, I just want to ask, how do you define the creator economy? and how does it impact traditional business?
0: The creator economy is a small business movement. And if you really want to get anthropological about this, I believe this to be theoretically the unwinding of when people left the farms and moved into the cities to go work in the factories. I'm going back a hundred years, industrial revolution type stuff. We're going back to the world of colonial living where your father was the candle maker. So you are the candle maker because you've been apprenticing and that's what your family does. You, next door to you is the baker. Next door to him is the blacksmith. And so that world of creators is, I know sales and marketing right now. I don't know how to build technology products. Never done it, but how to sell them. The person who knows how to build technology products in the blockchain world right now is hiring me to help them sell their thing. This is really happening. We're right back to the Main Street USA where the guy over here needs the guy next door. And so you've got this alliances, we'll call them. The creator economy is, I don't need the structure of a company anymore to make my living. And that's only because of the distribution and technology tools of the internet. And that is only in the last 10 years, right? Stripe and PayPal, that opened up a world. All of a sudden, I don't need to barter my time I can just take my skills right to market, and so folks that have figured this out, and many folks that haven't done it yet are watching other the younger generation do it, and and they're thinking, well, how do I get in on that? So the creator economy, I would argue, is a whole new avenue to supporting and sustaining yourself. You're not going to become a billionaire. Not everyone, you know, they're not trying to be Mr. Beast. The average income in America is just under fifty thousand dollars. That is not a hard income to make using the distribution tools of the internet if you have a real skill set, and so. I fell into the creator economy accidentally. I was doing marketing for blockchain because it's very similar to technology for stock trading. And in the blockchain world, social tokens are a thing and social tokens are creator economy coins. A personality person like Gary Vaynerchuk will issue an NFT and that's all built on blockchain. And so I I was being hired by gaming companies and real estate tokenization leads to I'm a person with a following and I'm going to issue a coin to my community. So I fell in with uh, the tilt, which is Joe Polizzi. He's the founder of the Content Marketing Institute. One thing led to another. And I found that a lot of these creators are trying to learn how to sell. They understand how to drive traffic and capture attention. That's not a problem. They don't know how to sell. I'm, I'm talking like IRL, social selling. So the creator economy, I've got like one foot in it from the sales angle. But the truth of the matter is this thing is already destroying corporate globally. Like there's, this is to the earlier conversation, not having a strong, charismatic leader in corporate and now your worker bees can make their own living and don't believe in you and what your company's doing. It's no wonder that they're having trouble with it. The attrition is crazy. Attracting and retaining talent, is, that's not going away anytime soon. That's going to be a problem for these companies going forward.
1: Yeah. Do you think they should just accept that this is where we are? Do you think that side hustles have become the norm as part of an employee profile, let's say? Do you think that companies just need to understand that they're not going to be able to build the kind of corporate culture that's rooted in long-term company loyalty because of
0: what's happening here? I don't think that generalization stands. I think that you have some and some. Not everybody wants to be a creator economy solopreneur. We live in that world, so that's great but there's something to be said for i want the camaraderie i want to be able to be structured i want to be part of a team that's building something meaningful and employees it's not bad to be an employee it's just got to do with matching your personality the problem was for all those generations there was no other choice much like school is built for a certain type of kid work was built for a certain type of adult and now there's an alternative for the other type of adult that's the creator economy
1: your kids are in their late teens you know they're going to go off to university college hopefully soon you know start careers and you as a father probably have some thoughts as to how they best navigate this do you feel like now is a time to diversify one skill set and move back toward being a very very effective agile generalist versus saying going back to to your lehigh <laughs> background going on all in on on chemical engineering let's say coming out with a four year degree in engineering but not really knowing any other skills. Who is more at risk in the next decade, do you think? The specialist or the generalist? I
0: personally believe that the specialist is more at risk, and here's why. AI. If it can be learned, if it's information driven, I can do it through a machine. It's the combination of creativity with that. It's EQ plus IQ, right? So to answer your question, my kids, I came out of 30 years of a corporate career, finance, very, very buttoned up suit and tie. So I've seen both sides. Three years now of entrepreneurship. I don't care what they do. I want them to be happy, right? Like every parent, same as you, whatever they want to do, fantastic. You'll support. But you want them to have the choice. And that choice, again, is predicated on their personality types and not just my kids, yours and everyone else's. As a parent, you have a pretty good idea of what your own kid is pretty good at and pretty not so good at. And so you'll try to steer them. But at the end of the day, they need to work in combination with skills that they have internally or with other people to be successful. Right? I love the concept of a solopreneur firm. I do. It's very appealing. But in real life, that ends up being combinations of solopreneurs create bigger things. So for the kids perspective, the idea of collaborating would be considered cheating in school. The idea of innovating would be not following the curriculum in school. So I don't want to poop on school, but I feel like there needs to be, the school will evolve because the needs of life are already moving ahead of it. The kids will end up learning a core set of skills. Doesn't matter what it is, communication, computer science, engineering. They should, they need that. But then they need to figure out, what do I plug that into? And that becomes, what people am I going to organize with? Right? There's, a, there's another piece now to school because of this whole creator economy thing.
1: It's interesting that this is the approach because, as a finance guy yourself, to me, it just sort of makes sense. You know, we diversify our stock portfolio. Why not try and diversify risk when it comes to our careers? It's kind of dangerous to go all in on something, at least that's the way I see it over the course of the next decade.
0: Tell me more about that, Adam.
1: I agree with you. Why do you think? It just, to me, there's so much risk in having some sort of disruption affect your career path. Whether that's a layoff, whether it's a piece of technology like AI, whether it's a change of heart, a life event, a change in location, a change of boss who all of a sudden doesn't like you. There's so many risks inherent in someone's employee experience going forward that I just see that it makes sense to hedge that risk with some sort of diversification strategy. And so how do you do that when it
0: comes to your own skill set? I have a thought on this. Stop thinking in terms of skills and start thinking in terms of strengths. So I'll give you an example. When I started my band, I was the guitar player and we couldn't find a singer. Eventually I was like, okay, I'll I'll sing. I don't know how to sing. Four years later, I'm a good singer. So you adapt to the role that's needed. I was a forward in soccer, football, and ended up being goalie because they needed a goaltender. So this is how it works in real life too. I was a sales guy. First, I was a trader on Wall Street. I got bought and sold stocks with people. Then I was the sales guy because someone had to explain how the AI trading software works. Now I'm a content marketer. Like, am I really any of these? I can call myself whatever I want. What's my core strength? When I got hired at my last job, IEX, it's a stock exchange in New York, I said to my boss or my future, I was about to start work there. I'm like, you know, Rona, what am I going to be doing exactly? Because it was never clear in the interview process. And he said to me, Mark, I, I could tell you what I think you're going to be doing, but three weeks later, it's probably going to change and then three months later, it's going to change again. And I need to know you're going to be okay with that. That's the world we live in now.
1: Invictus, where can folks find out more about Invictus? And obviously, Mark, where are you hanging out on social media? Where can folks connect with you?
0: My big social is going to be LinkedIn and because that's my world where I come from and Twitter. I run a podcast called Web 3x3, which is a weekly insights on what's going on in the world of Web 3 business marketing. If you find me anywhere on socials, it's Mark Angelos NYC, Mark with a C.
1: Well, as always, it's such a great conversation every time we get in a room. So really appreciate all your thoughts and thanks for sharing the time today.
0: Adam, I want to thank you for such thoughtful questions. I really enjoyed the conversations are always great. And I'm not just being polite. Like, it's great catching up with you again. If I can help in any way, let me know. That's it for today. Thanks so much for listening. Entrepreneurs Exposed is brought to you by ScriberBase. Build your subscription business and thrive.
1: More at ScriberBase.com. If you like what you heard today, don't forget to download and subscribe wherever you get your audio. It helps our audience find us. You can also visit us at glow.fm forward slash e2 to become a supporter. Until next time, make today count with whatever it is you're working on. Miles, are you ready to record our promo for season two of the WannaBet podcast? David, have you ever seen a grown man naked? Miles, we're not here to quote lines from airplane. We're here to tell people that season two starts August 18th.